Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word once again. Make me just the nail upon the wall, Lord, a rusty, sorry nail. Upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ so that I am not seen tonight. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So we've been following our um, Akon drama, right? Our, 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 our soap opera, as we say in the States. It's a very interesting soap opera, actually. Um, and it is based on the story of David and Bathsheba. And so the story takes this interesting turn where David now has been living with Bathsheba as his wife for a while. The rumors have kind of died down. Nobody's really thinking about it. David thinks he's gotten away with murder. Literally. He thinks he's gotten away with everything. It's all smooth sailing. He thinks nobody knows. But of course people are murmuring around Jerusalem. You know how it is. Somebody, there's servants in the castle or in the palace. They would have seen things. They didn't know what's really going on. So in a scene, one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible is this scene. Second Samuel chapter 12 and, and verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat, fed him out of his own food, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and his lamb was like a daughter to the man. It was a very close pet. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that, he, that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And when they hears this story, so the parable is that there's a rich man, a poor man, a rich man has flocks and herds and tons of stuff that he can kill and eat. There's a poor man who just loves a lamb. He doesn't he doesn't eat his lamb. You get that right? He feeds his lamb. The lamb lays on his bosom. It's kind of like a dog lamb. I, you know, I don't really get it, but but he's trying to make a point, so I guess you just got to figure it like that. I don't really hang out with too many lambs in my life, but he, so he has the lamb, he's nurturing the lamb, he's feeding the lamb. The Bible says in the parable that the lamb is like one of his daughters. So the rich man has a visitor that comes to visit. And in the parable that Nathan is telling to David, and there's a reason Nathan is using a parable, the rich man goes to where the poor man is, takes his little ewe lamb, this pet lamb that he has, and kills it and feeds his traveler, even though the rich man has Plenty that he could have killed to feed the traveler. When David hears this, David is a fair man. That's one thing you got to give him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He thought this was a true story. So David jumps up off of his throne. He's ready to fight. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this, verse 5, the man that has done this thing shall surely what? Shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had what? No pity. So David comes off the throne. He's like, what? Who did this? He's going to die. And before he dies, he's got to pay him back four times what he took. 
The next verse is one of the most killing verses in all of scripture. It's just a few words. It says this. 2 Samuel 12, 7 says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. In other words, you are the man in the story, David. You're the rich guy with all the stuff, and the other guy is the guy you killed who you took his wife. Now, what you have to understand is that when, see, what happens is when you think you've gotten away with sin, when you think you've gotten away with murder, in this case, literally, David thought he got away with murder, and you're confronted with it, a lot of the, the normal human response is to become offensive. It's to say, that's not me. I didn't do it. It was something else. Not my fault. This happened. It's to make excuses. To defend yourself. To say you weren't there. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's not my fault that Uriah got murdered and killed in a battle. That's what war is. Remember what he told the messenger? If I'm living a war, so I'm dying a war. That's what he told the messenger. But in this case, David's response is different. David says, uh, before David gets to, gets to speak anymore, in verse 7, the rest of the verse 7, Nathan says, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I like this, what God says to David, I would, have, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. God says it's not even just that you had so much. God says, if it wasn't enough what you had, had you asked for more, I would have given you more. God says, so the idea that you needed to take somebody else's wife and kill him is absurd. Because we had the kind of relationship where if you said, listen, Lord, I, I want more than what I have, I'd have given you more. Verse 9. Nathan the prophet says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Three different things. One, you premeditatedly killed Uriah. Two, you took his wife. Three, you killed him with our unclean, even enemy's sword even greater insult to what's happened. Then Nathan begins to give David all of the consequences. This is important. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is what happens with, with his son Absalom later on. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. Look at what God says in verse 12. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So there's four consequences. Well, not super relevant. If I can if I had time and I'll do the rest of the series, it would be very relevant when we get to David's children and the effect this has on them. Number one, four of David's own children would die or suffer. Right? The baby that, that um, Bathsheba has, the first baby dies, Absalom dies. His daughter is raped by one of his sons. That son is killed. I mean, it just goes on and on. Absalom leaves a massive rebellion against him. 
The warden never leaves David's house. His wives are publicly violated by his own son, Absalom. And everyone in Jerusalem would see David running like a coward from his own son. The consequences of his sin are enormous. And you have to ask yourself the question, when it comes to sex, just being frank and bold, when you are talking about sex, is the few moments of pleasure worth a lifetime of pain and cause? And most of the times, we're not thinking like that. We're thinking in the heat of the moment. That's why, let me tell you something. The secret to staying ahead of sex is to never get into the heat of the moment. Stay in really cold moments. Don't let the moment ever get heated up. Because in the heat of the moment, when the hormones start racing, you're, don't, you're, oftentimes you're not thinking straight. You make a decision out of, out of lust and out of a desire for pleasure that the consequences of which may last you a long time. One of my patients, when I was, when I was doing um, HIV work, first starting off doing HIV work in South Florida, I'll never forget, there was a beautiful girl from one of the um, Spanish Caribbean islands, came in as a patient one day, and we tested her, and um, like a few days later, the test came back, and she was positive for HIV. Let me tell you something. The next week, the waiting room was full of men. I mean, it was like men as far as the eyes could see. It was like an ocean of dudes. It was like a boy's dorm. I mean, it was a lot of people. And all of them had slept with this girl and now were afraid. Some of these big 19, 20, 21 year old dudes, buff, muscle bound guys, are sitting in the waiting room of the HIV clinic, falling like a little child. <laughs> One moment of pleasure. I could get medical on you and break it down and really. Up the, the, really going after is just a few seconds of pleasure. And for that little bit of time, because this is why intimacy inside marriage is so much more rewarding than often outside marriage. Outside marriage, once you've done a lot of times, you try to run in the opposite direction. You roll over and look at the person the next day, and you go, whoa, what in the world was I thinking and what was in that drink? I have an uncle told me a story like that. He got drunk and woke up at some woman's house. He's Jamaican. He woke up the next morning, looked over and go, Shouted out like a real Jamaican. He said he ran out that house so fast, he's put on his clothes down the street. If you get what I'm saying, you have to weigh the, the seconds of Because David, in one night, in all of this, and this is only the beginning, because because of David's sin, Later on, Israel and Judah split and it actually risks the existence of the Messiah in the future. Satan understood, don't miss this, Satan understood that if he could get David to mess up and do this, he could get David to break the lineage that would lead to the Messiah. Watch this. He knows if he can get some of us to mess up in one night, it can break our lineage to the Messiah. David almost messed up the first coming of Jesus. You can mess up, at least for yourself, you can mess up the second coming of Christ. Those decisions are serious. You've got to be very careful of what you do because everyone ends up seeing your, your humiliation as it happened to David. Now, verse 13 is important. This is the 
difference between David and Saul? David's response is us. David says, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see that? One, two, three, four, five, six words. I have sinned against the Lord. Why is that so relevant? When Saul was caught sinning, he said, oh, I actually took all of this cattle to, to sacrifice to the Lord. And the prophet said, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Remember that? And Saul kept making up excuses and, and carrying on. And then he wanted to just show off and pretend he was still on God's side. David doesn't do that. And I want you to understand that this is where the story of Saul and the story of David are divergent. This is where they go in opposite directions. Because even if you're caught in sin, this must be your response. You get what I'm saying? If you try and make excuses, if you try and blame her, or if you try and blame him for your sin, you won't fully get where God wants you to be. David said, look, I sinned against the Lord. Period. No excuses. And this is why Ellen White says this, the Patriarchs of Prophets, page 723, she says, Prophet's rebuke touched the heart of David. Conscience was aroused. His guilt appeared in all its enormity. His soul was bowed in penitence before God. With trembling lips, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. All wrong done to others reaches back from the injured one to who? To God. David had committed a grievous sin toward both Uriah and Bathsheba, and he keenly felt this, but infinitely greater was his sin against who? Was his sin against God. I want you to get this. The reason that this is such a serious thing is because when you, young men, let me, let me say this about the young men. There are a few seats up front of people. Let me see. If you, when you're a young man and, and, and things happen, and you figure out a silver tongue, and you start trying to woo girls and met to, to sleep with them or to just be inappropriate with them, and you're, you're using your best lines and trying to be as slick as possible, understand that you don't just sin against the girl. You also sin against who? Against God. You should keep that in the forefront of your mind. The devil is trying to get you to do things you ought not do. That's where David goes. Nathan then says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Because David was willing to say he sinned, he avoided death. Now, to understand this well, remember the Old Testament law was that if you committed adultery, what happened? You were stoned. She was stoned. The husband was to bring the accusation against them. One of the reasons many Bible scholars says he made sure to have Uriah the Hittite killed because he didn't want him to be able to bring an accusation against David. He would have figured it out. So David wanted to make sure that didn't happen. That was the thing. But Nathan says, listen, you're not going to die. However, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord blaspheme, child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. So the story goes from a night on the roof, passion, wild night, David is thrilled, he thinks he gets away with it, until she comes back and she says, actually, I'm pregnant. When David realizes that, David goes even darker. He brings the husband home, tries to lie to him to get him to lie with his wife so that everyone will think it's the husband's child and not David's. And the husband is so loyal to David, he won't do it. But David sends Uriah 
with his own death note all the way back to Joab when Uriah is set up in the battle and he is killed. Really, first degree premeditated murder on the part of David. I mean, really, that's what it is. When that happens, David takes Uriah's wife, marries her, and brings her into his house. And he thinks he's gotten away with it, and he thinks he's sitting pretty. He thinks everything is fine. By the time you get to the end of the story, David has been called on the carpet for his sin. Nathan has called him out by the parable of this, 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 this strangely um, domesticated lamb, lives with man and his family, and David realizes in the end that he's in, and David pronounces his own, his own punishment on himself. He says, the man should what? Die. That's why Nathan has to say, no, you're not going to die. Because any punishment he pronounced on the man, he was supposed to get. He said he's supposed to repay fourfold. He took Uriah's life. Four of his own children would be destroyed. So David pronounces his own thing. One of the lessons I want you to get from this is on the issue of how do you approach someone who you know is not living right? Nathan gives us a lesson. Does Nathan run into the castle door open like Bruce Lee, knock everybody over? Where's David? He's in trouble. God's going to kill him. Does he run into the first? Sinner! Sinner! I want you to get this because some of you are going to be in positions of leadership. And you're going to come across situations where people fall. The scripture says that when, we, when someone falls, those of us who are able are supposed to help them back up. We're supposed to be an assistant to bringing them back up, realigning them with God. Your job in church is never to find a way to condemn someone to death, destruction, and alienation. You want to find a way to restore them back to God. That's what you really want to do. Because guess what? That's what God is doing for us. And I know in church, I remember growing up in church, there was a kid um, who his father was a, was a was a drinker and he was always at the bar. So this poor kid went to go. His mother told him, you know, go tell your father something. So the kid went to the bar, ran into the bar to go tell his father something. He's in the bar, does whatever he's doing, and comes out. And one of the church members drives by. It's a true story. While this boy is coming, he's like 16 years old. While he's coming out of the bar from talking to his father, he didn't drink any alcohol. He's doing what his mother told him to do. Can you imagine that when they found that out in church, they brought him before the board of the church and they were going to put this 16-year-old boy out of church? Could that happen here in Ghana? I hope not. Because, you, in fact, the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says, that if we're going to make a mistake to make as a church when people fall, he said, if we're going to make a mistake, make a mistake on the side of mercy rather than on the side of justice and judgment. You get what I'm saying? So Nathan doesn't go to him and kick down the door and yell, sinner, sinner, and point David out. He goes in and has David admit and tell his own sin story. The reason Nathan can do this is because Nathan has a relationship with David. But what I want to challenge you is that in church, here in school, you build relationships with people. So that if you ever need to talk to someone about what's going on in their life, you have a platform from which to do it. Because what you know what happened to that, that guy who was coming out of the bar? He left church. He turned 18 years old. He was done with church. They humiliated him, 
so bad that we lost him forever. I mean, maybe he's come back, but we lost him for as long as I knew from church. Nathan's approach to David's sin is a lesson to everyone who will ever be in leadership in church. You're not the Bruce Lee Kirk police. Not Jackie Chan with Chris Rock in the movie. You're not supposed to be just beating everybody up and knocking everything over. You're, you're, the first thing you should be thinking is, okay, if this is true, how do we restore this person? And if you think like that, you approach the whole situation differently. The baby gets sick. David is in trouble. Everyone knows his sin. It's dark days for David. But Ellen White says this. This passage in David's history is full of significance to the repenting sinner. Get this. It is one of the most forcible illustrations given us of the struggles and temptations of humanity and of the genuine repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Through all the ages, it has proved a source of encouragement to souls that, having fallen into sin, were struggling under the burden of their guilt. This story, and I'm about to finish the story, and I'm going to give you 12 steps, 12 steps of repentance, up to repentance, 12 steps of repentance. But this story tells us that I don't care how, listen, most of you, I hope you don't do this, but most of you aren't going to steal somebody's wife and kill the dude. Mostly. <laughs> I hope nobody does anything like that. But the story, the point of the story is that even if you go far from God, you can be restored. And here's the thing. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist Christian because of the Sabbath. I love the Sabbath. The Sabbath is great. It's biblical. I enjoy the Sabbath. I use the Sabbath. I love the Sabbath. I'm not a Seventh-day Christian because the dead are dead. The state of the dead. I love the doctrine. Keeps me very safe. When they tell me there's ghosts in the hospital, I know that there's no ghosts in the hospital because I know the truth. Amen? I, I can go on and on. I'm a Christian because of this truth. That unlike every other religion in the world, Christianity says you cannot save yourself. Christianity says that the righteousness does not come from within. The righteousness must come from Christ. And that, that process is a belief process. Faith without works is dead. Yes, just must live by faith. That's why I'm a Christian. If not, I, I could be a Muslim. I could be a Jew. I could be all kinds of, I could be a Hindu. I could pick another religion. But Christianity is a liberating religion because it takes the onus off of me to save myself and places squarely the onus of my salvation on the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which means I am not to live a life feeling shame and guilt because I've made mistakes. And some of you in here have made mistakes. I don't know who has and who hasn't. You don't even need to know. I don't want to know, actually. What I do want to know is that it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. If, like David, because you, you probably haven't gone as bad as David went, but no matter how far you've gone, the story of David says you can come back and you can again be a man after God's own heart. That's how we started this whole series, remember? So let's look at this. Twelve steps. Twelve steps based on Psalm 51. I want you to get these twelve steps. You may not, hopefully you, you, know, you may use it, but hopefully one day you'll have a friend, a relative, 
who needs this, you can go through Psalm 51, take these 12 principles, and this person can come all the way back to God through these principles. Psalm 51 and verse 1 says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Now this is about two years after everything has happened. David has been mulling in this. He's filled guilt and shame. I can imagine one night David gets up again. This time he doesn't go to a rooftop. Amen. This time he goes to a desk up. David picks out a piece of paper in our time, a scroll in his time, ink and a pen, and David begins to write under divine inspiration the 51st division of the psalm. Two years, most scholars say, after everything's happened. He's already had a baby die. Solomon's already been born. And he's sitting there, and he's still wrestling with the weight of the shame and guilt of what happened a couple of years earlier. And David sits down to write, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Step number one, if you're going to return to God after you've gone very far, is to realize that mercy and God's love are the foundations of repentance. Mercy and God's love. So here's the thing. A lot of people won't come back to God because they think that their sin has disqualified them from being loved by God. I hope you got that. And so what they think is, well, I've sinned so bad, how could God still love me? That's what they think. But the reality is, God's love for you transcends your behavior. In fact, even though you are tossed into hell, the scripture says, is God's strength at God says, I take no joy in the destruction of the He loves even those who will not make it into heaven. His love for you doesn't end. That's why you can always come back. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son went back home thinking, well, I'll just be a servant. When he got home, what happened? He found a father who still loved him. Your father loves you no matter what. And his mercy, many times in Psalms it says, his mercy endures you know what that means? It means it endures regardless of what happens. It's always available no matter what happens in your life. That's step number one. You, got, you have to know mercy and God loves are the, are the foundation of repentance. The first thing David says. Then he says, according unto thy multitude of thy tender mercies. Look what he says. Based on that mercy, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. Then he says, and before I go on, let me say this. So the reason the word blot is going to come up a few times in this chapter is because there is a book of works and there's a book of what? Life. In the book of works, we're told in the spirit of prophecy and it's in the scripture that it, we, what we do is always being recorded. It's always being what? Everything you watch, everything we do, the heavenly messenger is recording what we do. One day when we stand before the judgment seat of God, like a giant movie, all of those actions will come up before everyone. Now here's the problem. Here's what's scary for someone like me who sinned in his life, who's made terrible mistakes. I don't want to get up that day, stand in front of all the world, or whoever is there, all the witnesses, and when, they, and the, when Eric Walls comes up and my life begins to play, I don't want the whole universe to see it. That's why the Bible says that the they see not your nakedness, or they see not your shame. And all of a sudden, the sin is going to start rolling. But if you're a Christian, if you've been covered by the blood, when that screen comes up, the screen is going to go blood red. Jesus will step out and say, 
This one is mine. I've covered him with my blood. Because in the book of life, it is the blood of Jesus that will literally have blotted out your transgression. So when they go to read your life book, the sin won't be visible. It will have been redacted. You getting that? That's why I'm a Christian. Because in Christianity, your sin can be blotted out. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You have to know going into the point of, when you're going to repent, you need to know that the point of repentance is to permanently remove sin. You don't repent so that you can sin again next weekend. Oh, I messed up what I did last week, Saturday night. Lord, forgive me. Give me a fresh start so I can do this all over again next weekend. It is to remove it permanently, to blot it out, to wash it off of you. That is the purpose. Psalm 51 and verse 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is what? Ever before me. One of the dangers of sin, I've learned growing up, one of the biggest dangers of sin is, sin works like medication. The reason that medications don't work long term, and I'm a medical doctor and I can tell you this, because your body has these very complicated enzymatic processes that will override the medication. In other words, you can develop tolerance to the medicine. So when we put someone on blood, high blood pressure medicine in the United States, a lot of people have high blood pressure, we have to keep putting them on higher and higher doses of the medicine because their body gets used to it and pushes back against it as their body adjusts to the medicine. Then we have to add a new medicine. And guess what happens? They get used to that one. So when you go to America, you go into people's uh, pill cabinet, sometimes they got to take a bottle like this full of pills every day. I'm exaggerating. But you get my point. They're literally taking 12, 15, 20 tablets a day for cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, all these different things. Because you develop tolerance to medication. Watch this. Sin works the same way. If you expose yourself to something the first time you watch something that you know you shouldn't have watched, the first time you see an R-rated film and there's some nudity and you've never seen it, you oh, uncomfortable, you don't feel right. Fast forward five years and you popping popcorn and drinking soda. If you keep exposing yourself to sin, guess what? You develop tolerance to it. And that's the way the devil works. He gives you small doses of something. You, you heard the analogy of the frog that they put in water. If you put a, a, a frog in hot oil and water, what is he going to do? He's going to jump out. But if you put him in, a, in tepid water, in room temperature water, and you turn the fire on and let the water slowly boil, what happens? The frog stays in there and boils. The devil is going to slowly turn up the temperature of sin around you so that you will sit in it and die. That's why you've got to acknowledge your sin. And your sin has to be ever before you, as David said. You see, because the third step is you can't confess what you don't acknowledge. You can't repent of sin. You don't acknowledge. You say, well, it's not wrong. I was, this is just the way I am. This is the way, you know, it's always been. I just have this weakness. If that's your approach to sin, guess what? never fully repent of it. You've got to call it by its right name. Sin is what? Sin. In Psalm 51 and verse 4, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. This is what David says. 
done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, to declare without judges. David says, listen, Lord, I won't sin against you. Now, this is lunacy if you really look, read and go back to the story. They sinned against Uriah the Hittite. Absolutely. He had him killed. What David did to Uriah is so dirty. I don't think there's anything dirtier in all the Bible. He had the man carry the letter telling them to kill him. That's, as we say in the States, that's foul. That is so wrong on so many levels. He, he took advantage of Uriah's loyalty to have him carry his own death letter all the way to Joab. That's crazy. He took his wife. He was the king, so he was in the position of power. So it was very difficult, you can argue, for her to say no. So basically, you can argue he just he took advantage of He sinned easily against Uriah. He sinned easily against uh, 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 his wife. Yet, when David goes to repent, he says, listen, I only sinned against you, God. He said, I, against thee, the only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judges. Step four, you must realize you sinned against God, and you want to vindicate him as judge. What do I mean by that? You want to put the sin back in the context of great controversy. Get this. The point I'm trying to make is Satan said that God's law can't be kept. Every time we sin and we're unrepentant, we make Satan's point against God as our judge. Are you getting this? That's the point of the great controversy. So if you sin and you're not really truly repentant, if you sin and you're not really looking at it in the right way, if we go back to the verse, David says, listen, I want you to be justified when you speak and I want you to be clear when you judge. I the whole point of the plan of salvation, well, one of the major points of the plan of salvation is to vindicate God as judge. Every time we deal with sin, when we repent, when we confess our sins to God, we are going back and saying, no, Satan is wrong, God is right. That's why the scripture says when we sin, we crucify Christ afresh. Verse 5 says, behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother Conceive me. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20 that the sins of the father visit the children to the third and fourth generation. We now know that you there are character traits that you can pick up. So if you come from a family where everybody drinks a lot, there are a lot of alcoholics, you should not try alcohol. Because the very traits might be in you. There may be parts of that that's in you. Some of it is environmental, some of it can be genetic. So you shouldn't drink. But we also know that there's something now called epigenetics. That means that under certain stressors, certain characteristics can also be passed to you. The point is, what David is saying here is, listen, I've been a sinner before I committed this particular sin. He says, basically, I was born in sin. I was shaped in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. These weaknesses I've always had, this failure that I just had, really the symptom of a what? Deeper problem. Because a lot of times what happens is we want to isolate and say, oh man, I messed up last Saturday night. I did X, Y, and Z. It'll never happen again. We say my sin problem is what happened last Saturday night. But the real problem is who happened last Saturday night? You're the sin problem. You were born with a decayed moral capacity because of 
the sin of Adam, of Adam and Eve. And so the fifth step is this. Approach God in the truth that your sin problem is bigger than your recent problems. Because what a lot of people want to do is say, oh, I slipped up with that boy last weekend. I shouldn't have gotten in the car with him. I shouldn't have gone here with him. It was just to ask yourself when you talk to God, Lord, how much deeper does my sin problem actually go? Verse 6 says, Behold, thou desires truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Deep inside. See, David's going beyond just what happened with, with, with Bathsheba and with, and, with, and with Uriah the Hittite. He's going deep. He says, You want truth deep inside of me, Lord. David was, deep David was a liar and a murderer. So step six is you have to recognize that God seeks to correct sin at its root. So you, when you repent, have to go beyond the sin you just committed and ask God to help you deal with the root cause. Watch this. The character flaws that allow you to make this mistake. You got to go beyond where you are. God seeks to correct sin at its root. You must be asking God to do that. So David says in verse seven, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. To purge something is to go deep and remove something permanently. Seven, seventh one. Purging is deep cleansing, not just being sorry that you were what? Caught. A lot of people aren't really sorry they sinned. They're sorry they got caught. And so they're really, they're more upset. They don't like the consequences. They're more upset that they got caught. So they're not really repenting of sin. They're repenting of being dumb enough to be caught. And that's why a lot of times when you're just sorry that you got caught, a lot of times what happens is you don't really get over the sin problem. And a few years, months, weeks later, you're back at the same thing you were so sorry for before. Don't be sorry you got caught. That's not repentance. That's called avoidance. You don't want consequences. Verse 8 says, make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones of which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. There's that word blot again. It says, hide your face from my sins. David says something in verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Broken bones in the Bible is a symbol of sin. How many bones did Jesus break? None. One of the prophecies about Jesus is that his bones wouldn't be broken. And, and that because having broken bones is a symbol of sin. So even when he was on the cross and the two thieves, the Sabbath was coming, and they needed the two thieves to die, what did they do to the thieves? They broke their legs. Why? Because then they couldn't push up on the cross to keep breathing. Once you broke their leg, they couldn't push. They would stay down. They would suffocate. The crucifixion was a terrible way to go. And they died quicker. When the soldier went to go and break Jesus' leg, what happened? He was already dead. They poked him in his side, and what came out? Blood and water. The symbols of cleansing with water and the symbol of cleansing with blood. Powerful. Never had a broken bone. When we sin symbolically, spiritually, we are breaking our bones. The bone in your body is interesting thing to break because inside the bone is the marrow. The marrow is what actually produces blood. And the life is in the what? The bone is also the most innervated, the most connected to the nerves of almost any part of your body. That's when you break a bone, it hurts so much. So you can imagine what David is saying. He's saying, listen, make me to hear joy and gladness that 
Owns what you have broken may rejoice. Here's the good news from a medical perspective. You can break a bone and if it's set right, it can heal so that it's stronger after you broke it than if you had never broken it. You getting this thing? I want you to know spiritually it's the same thing. If when you fall, you learn the lessons from your fall, you can come out of a fall stronger spiritually than if you had never fallen. David asks for joy. He's trying to get back to his joy. Seek joy in the fact that God will remove your sin. Why do I say that? Because what a lot of people, even in church, growing up, I grew up in my fourth generation, seven of minutes. What I learned in church is what a lot of people expect you to do is live the rest of your life miserable because you messed up. They want you to have a cloud like the old, you guys, I don't know if you guys get the old um, slap rock cartoon and the guy walks around, he's got a cloud over his head all the time. He's always bad luck. Everything They want you to walk around like slip rock and everything bad is always happening to you. When God forgives you of your sin, he wants to restore joy. And let me tell you why that's important. Because you, sin is not joyous. Sin is exciting. Sin is pleasurable. But it's a short-lived thing. It's like riding on a roller coaster. I don't know if you ever go. If you ever go to the States and you get on some of these giant roller coasters, you will stand in line at Disneyland, these places, you can stand in line for three hours, four hours, sometimes ten hours, people will wait to get on a roller coaster. And the roller coaster will last 35 seconds. 45 seconds. I can't do it. I'll be, I'll be ready to fight by the time I get to the front. I can't do it. And so people will stand there and they inch up, inch up, talking, eating chips, they inch up, and get on the roller coaster, and 45 seconds over. I don't find joy in that. Now there's excitement in the moment. That's sin. Sin is like that roller coaster ride where you wait all that time. But God is saying, seek joy. Joy doesn't just come and go in a moment. Joy you have when things are going good, even when things are going not so good. The Christian should be joyous. You go to church and, and the people who are just miserable and frumpy and always angry and upset. And why would I want your Jesus? If what your Jesus gives you is misery. David says when you repent of sin, you are reestablished joy in your life. David had joy with God as a shepherd boy when he slew the lamb and he slew the bear. He had joy with God when he killed Goliath. He had joy with God when he played for Saul. He had joy with God when he was anointed. He had joy with God when he was running from Saul and he would not touch the Lord's anointed. David knew and experienced God's joy. Most of you have experienced God's joy. If you fall, you are looking to be reinstated in God's joy. Not a roller coaster ride. Get a yacht. And it's yours. That's joy. You can go out on the water and sail around all day if you want. That's joy. Seek joy. Don't just seek to be accepted back into the fold. Don't just seek to have your parents stop being mad at you. Don't just seek to have the church people, you know, not write you off. Seek joy in the Lord. God hasn't called you to be miserable. Did I read this? Oh, I skipped on here. I asked to be made over while clinging to the Holy Spirit. This is where David says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Somehow I skipped that verse. That's the verse there. He says, I asked to be made over while clinging to the Holy Spirit. You want to be a new creature after you repent. You want newness about, you want character to be renewed after you've repented. 
Psalm 51, 12 and 13 says, Restore unto me the joy. See this again? Restore the joy of thy salvation. Uphold you with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto you. First 10 says, Ask to be brought to a place where you are fit to evangelize. Because guess what? One of the most powerful things I have learned in witnessing to other people is to tell them where you've come from. To tell them what you've come out of. And I remember meeting I think when I was at Oakland, one of the students had, had gotten into trouble. He'd gotten into a gang or something, and he'd gone to prison. And he was, we were all sitting around. He was telling us his testimony of how he spent time in the state penitentiary. And while he was in the state penitentiary, um, he had been raised in the church. He found God again, began to give Bible studies, began to teach and to preach in the prison. People started being baptized inside the prison while he was serving his term. He was out now, and he was bringing us to go do some missionary work in a town a few, you know, maybe 20, 30 miles away, and we were in the car, and this guy was telling us this story of how God had restored him after he made this terrible mistake as a child. And you know what? I was a freshman at Oakwood, and the story stuck with me. To this day, I credit that story with helping me to stay focused on God while I was at school. Because I understood that this man had had an experience with God. Sometimes we don't want the world to know our sin. We want to hide it. But you know what? Sometimes God allows you to go through it, to be restored from it, because you're going to run into someone some, someday who's gone through what you, or who's going through what you went through. And you can tell them, listen, God has not given up on you. I've seen that happen in church. When a young lady got pregnant and the whole church was ready to toss this, woman, this poor girl, she's at like 17, toss her out on her head. Nobody was even looking for the guy who got her pregnant. We were ready to put a, you know, a scarlet letter on the girl. Nobody was even looking for who got her pregnant. And I'll never forget a woman in the church stepped up in front of the church while they were having one of these meetings, which is archaic in many, in many cases, around this girl's life and around this girl's future. This woman was well respected in the church. She was married, she had children, she was a leader in the church. And she said, My, she got up and said, Listen, many of you don't know this, but my first child was conceived outside of wedlock. And she told the story of how the church did her. And yet, when she was out in the streets, she found God, she found God for real outside of church. And it was in that experience out in the streets when she really found God, she was finally able to heal from everything she had been through, from all of her mistakes, come back in the church, and now she's a leader. And she said, if you put this girl out, understand, you're not gonna necessarily lose one soul, you might lose who? You lose her and her child. Now, I'm not saying the church will lower its standards and if people make mistakes, we just accept their mistakes. But I am saying, again, that if God treated us that way, who among us would be able to stand? When people make mistakes, the goal is restoration. So here's the thing. You can say, listen, you can't hold an office. We can censor. You can do all that stuff. But guess what? You better buy some diapers, too. The church ought to buy some diapers, we ought to send some baby clothes over there. We ought to make sure that that young lady knows we love her. Regardless of what mistake you make, the church is sure that we love you because the church represents who? What if God stopped loving us when we made a mistake? You know what the Bible actually says? While we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we're sinners. I remember I was in a reggae club. I don't know if y'all know much about reggae, but the reggae clubs are very dangerous, violent places. At least they were. I don't I haven't been in many, many years. And I was with my cousin. It was a New Year's Eve party, I think. I was home on break from college. 
we were in this nightclub on Miami Beach, and it was dangerous. I knew the club was dangerous because when you go to pull up to the club, the police cars are already lined up, and the ambulances, right? So they just wait. They don't. They so they don't have to drive. They just sit there so that when they get the call, they can just walk inside and drag the man out, throw him in the back of the ambulance, and arrest the other guy. So we're in there bubbling around to the music, and we're bubbling, bubbling, and I accidentally stepped on a man's foot. My cousin was in front of me. I was here, and there was a guy right behind me. We're going through the bypass. I stepped on the guy's foot, and I knew I did. I said, whoa, that's not good. So I just kept walking. <laughs> I didn't know who foot it was. Turns out it was a big, what we call dope boy, a big drug dealer. It was his foot I stepped on. He was a killer. At least that's what they said. He took a Heineken bottle. Uh, I it like Heineken for some reason. He took a Heineken bottle and he busted the bottle upside the head of the guy behind me. He thought he stepped on his foot. And the whole place erupted in war. Like something out of a movie. Everybody was kung fu fighting, you know what I'm saying? There is that throwing stuff, and I grabbed my cousin, and we ran out of there, got in the car, and took off. I think I, think I was done with the nightclub life after that one. But watch this. When I was telling that story at prayer meeting, <laughs> I went to prayer meeting that Wednesday night. Um, I was telling the story. You know what the old folk in Central old Bacon lady said? She said, You're, it's, it's a good thing. God protects us before we even have enough good sense to ask for it. In other words, if God treated us the way we deserve, that Bible would have came upside of my head. I was raised at Venice. I knew I had no business in a nightclub, especially one where they had an ambulance already parked out, a six ambulance parked out front just waiting for people. My point is, when you're dealing with God and you're dealing with God's people, remember what God brought you through. Remember how far you may have come. Remember that if it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us would be here. And so we've got to try and restore folk. That's why David says, listen, if you, if you do this thing for me, God, you store the joy unto me. If you hold me with your free spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. He says, if you do that for me, Lord, if I can joy back and I can keep your Holy Spirit, I will evangelize for you. I'll teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners shall be what? David says, I will use my experience to help somebody else. That's what David is saying. Deliver me from blood guiltness, blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Step 11, promise that your deliverance will lead to exalting his righteousness, not yours. So what some folk do is they come out of sin, and you know what they do? They become self-righteous. That's not what happened to David. Let me tell you something. The fact that I've sinned and I know what I've done wrong, I know what's laid behind me, keeps me humble. I'm never going to lord over you about stuff. I will try to encourage you to live for God. I'll try and teach you the right way. I'll show you what the scripture says, but I'm never going to be fooled into believing somehow I'm more righteous than everybody else. Never going to get to that point because that's what Lucifer did. He says, I deserve to be the highest one in heaven. I should exalt my throne above the, the, the stars of the most high God on the sides of the north. I, 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 I. You know what I've learned? When you I, I, I enough, 
you usually walk away from God. So my past sin is a constant reminder to keep me humble. Don't let your past haunt you. Let your past humble you. So once God has forgiven you of your sin, accept the joy, but stay humble. Don't let your past and your victories make you think you're better than other folk. Exalt God's righteousness. Psalm 51 verse 16 and 17 says, Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God doesn't really want to burn off. Let me tell you something. God, if, if we never sang praise in America, we do some heavy praise and worship. They'd be up there, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, they carrying it on. You know, they didn't do it. They stepped in. If you never did one more song like that, if you had a broken spirit, God would be more pleased. He's not concerned with how many bulls you can put on an altar. He's more concerned, have you been broken? Have you been humbled? That's what God wants. He wants you humble because when you're humble, he can work with you. That's why he said Moses was the meekest man on the earth, the scripture says. After you, when you go through the process of repentance, the last step is this one. Offer your brokenness to God as a what? As a sacrifice. Because when you offer God your brokenness, he can be the potter. Jeremiah says he's a potter and that the potter wants to put you back together again. If you give God your brokenness, he will remake you. And when he remakes you, now you can live above the stain of sin. You can live a victorious life, not in arrogance, but in humility. Following God because you love him, because your experience with him in dealing with your sin says he loves me. Again, I'm a Christian because of God's mercy and his grace. I love the Lord. I, sometimes I have to sit there and agonize with God. Tears pouring down my face as I read Matthew chapter 27. What sacrifice Christ made for me at the cross. And I think about how wretched, miserable I am. How far from God I'm gone. And I sit there and I weep as I read of what Christ did redeem me. That doesn't make me think I'm better than anyone else. It makes me feel very humbled. And it makes me not want to break my Christ's heart again. It makes me see sin differently. Because every time I sin, the scripture says I crucify him afresh. It makes me want to study the Ten Commandments, study the scripture, understand what God requires of me. Because I love the Lord and I don't want to hurt the Lord. I'm not trying to sin because I think, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, not sin because I think somehow not sinning is going to save me. I don't want to sin because I don't want to hurt my God. My road to heaven isn't paved by my behavior. My road to heaven is paved with the blood of his behavior. It's his righteousness that's going to save me. It's his righteousness that's going to give me sin. And guess what? I don't want, I want to make this clear tonight. You should be praying and asking God to give you victory over sin because you love him. Because you're in a love relationship with the Lord your God. And if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your understanding, you're not going to take sin lightly because you're not going to want to hurt one you love so much. Why does it hurt so much when you get when you break when you mess up and your mother finds out? Most of us, man, there's times in my life when I messed up and my mother had to find out. Let me tell you, sometimes I, I wept bitterly. 
Sometimes when I was a kid, I went mentally because I knew she was going to beat me. But as an adult, or even as a young adult, I should say, I would cry because I just, my mother did so much for me and it hurt for me to have to go back and tell her I messed up like this. How much more for God should I try and live right so I don't break his heart? Isaiah 43 and verse 25 says, I, even I am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember your sin and will not remember thy sins. God doesn't just promise to blot out your sin. He promises to do what? To forget them. He says he will cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness and that he will remember your sin no more. Watch how deep that is. That means that your sin will never be remembered. God will forget your sin. And you know what some of us do? We go get a deep sea diving boat. We get scuba gear. We ask, go over to the deepest part of the ocean and we drop down into the water and we go looking for our old sin. If God has forgotten your sin, why do you spend so much time on it? If it's forgotten, let it be forgotten. 2 Samuel 11, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, went in unto her and lay with her and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. I want to show you how much God restores. God restores so much that after David does what he does, the second child that Bathsheba has for him, God loves. Isn't that powerful? A lot of us would be saying, oh, that kid will never be right. He'll never be good. Look at how he came into this world. Don't you ever fool yourself into thinking that life is illegitimate. God can use, you know what they teased Jesus as when he was a child? They teased him that they didn't know who his father was. Don't ever do that to anyone. In this story, Solomon is loved of the Lord. And here's how powerful the story gets. I love this. Look at this. I don't know why this comes out on here. Look at this. Here's Judah. The four women the Bible mentioned that David descends from, only possibly Bathsheba is of the house of Israel. Some say she may not actually have been. Her husband definitely was. Her first husband definitely wasn't. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute and had her father-in-law sleep with her. Yet Tamar is one of Jesus's, here's Yeshua, one of Jesus's great-great-great-great-grandmothers. There's Ruth, a Moabitess who used to worship idols. She has a son named Boaz who has a son named Jesse who is David's father. And she is a woman from whom Jesus descends. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. And yet, and yet she also is in the lineage in the, when you read of the lineage of Jesus. But here's Bathsheba and David. Out of the terrible things they did, out of all that sin, somehow God still worked for good to happen. Such good that out of the union of, of David and Bathsheba, a union that should never have happened, Solomon is born and the kingdom is taken to its greatest heights. Then Jesus is born from that union. Don't ever think that you committed something so bad that God can't still use you. That there's no good that God can do with you. Don't ever let anybody lie to you like that. 1 Kings 14, 7, go tell Jeroboam. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel and rent thy kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to thee and yet thou hast not been my, as my servant David. Look what the Bible says about David who killed a man and committed adultery. It says David kept my commandments 
David followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in my in mine eyes. What? David was a gangster. He sent a man with his own death note. He took his wife and married her. David did horrible stuff. How is it that the Bible can say that? Because it says this. I, even I, am he. God taught your transgressions for mine own sake. And will what? And will not remember your sins. Tonight, what I want you to get more than anything is that truth. And when God deals with your sins, he forgets them. Don't let the devil send you deep sea diving back into your past when God has given you victory. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Last couple slides, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 726. Thousands of children of God who have been betrayed into sin when ready to give up the despair have remembered how David's sincere repentance and confession were accepted by God. Notwithstanding, he suffered for his transgression. They also have taken courage to repent and try again to walk in the ways of God command, God's commandment. Whoever under the reproof of God will humble the soul with confession and repentance as did David may be sure that there is hope for them. Hope for him. Whoever will in faith accept God's promises will find pardon. The Lord will never cast away one truly repentant soul. He has given these two promises. Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. He shall make peace with me. Isaiah 27, 5. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. Watch the last part. He says, for he will abundantly pardon. Don't let you, don't ever think you can't move on. Psalm 103, 13, David says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. God remembers that we are what? We're but dust. God knows you're weak and that you make mistakes. He understands that. Ellen White says it like this in the Desire of Ages, page 462. She says, men hate the sinner. While they love the sin, Christ hates the sin, but loves the sinner. I was working in the, in, the, in the veterans hospital. One of my favorite stories from my medical career is this one. I was working in the addiction unit at the VA hospital. And I went in, I was in there one day and a man came to be seen. And he sat down in the chair and he said, doctor, I want to die. I said, we didn't even do anything yet. You want to die already? He didn't, he didn't laugh. He didn't smirk. He said, no, he was dead serious. He said, no, I, I'm serious. I, I want to die. I said, if you want to die, why are you in the hospital? He said, because I thought it would be easier to die here than anywhere else. I said, what's going on with you? He said, listen. Two years ago, my mother died. A year ago, my father died. He said, Doc, two weeks ago, my dog died. I don't have anyone. He was dead serious. I said, I, don't, I still don't understand. Why would you come here? He said, I was going out to the desert. He said, I've been, I've been struggling with addiction problems. I was molested when I was a, a, a boy. 
by an older man. He said he started telling me all of his stories of his life. He said he said, and I, I went to Vietnam, and while I was fighting for America in Vietnam. My wife found another man here in the States and I was sending my money home to her and they were spending it. When I got back, she ran off with the other man. He said, I've committed terrible sin. I've lived contrary to what God would want me to, want me to do. And he said, I just want to die because I'm useless. And I started to pray. I said, Lord, what do I say to this man? And God said, ask him. I said, do you know the Lord Jesus? The man said, yes, I know Jesus. He's the son of the living God. I said, if you know Jesus, why do you want to die? Why do you want to commit suicide? Because that's really what he was hinting at. He said, I've sinned so bad, Doc, that God would never accept me. I took out that government-issued paper, and I began to write on it. The plan of salvation. I didn't have a glow track. I didn't have a. I didn't have anything to hand out. And I began to write the plan of salvation that Jesus, before the earth even existed, before the foundations of the world, he was a lamb that was slain. And then I started. I, I marched him through the Old Testament, and I got him to the birth of Christ. I said Jesus was born in a manger, lived a sinless life. I said he went the pain, the beatings of the thorn of crowns, the very thorns that grew in the garden when Adam sinned are the thorns they put on Jesus' brow. I said they beat him. They took him to the cross and cruelly hung him there. And he died so that you could live. He could have called 10,000 angels but he stayed there for you and for me. He said, you mean you think Jesus died for me? I said, sir, if you were the only sinner on earth, he would have come and died for you. The man began to cry. He began to weep. You mean God still loves me? I said, listen, I can guarantee you that God will forgive you of your sin and he will restore you unto his own. I said, I can guarantee it because I'm a sinner that's been saved. By grace. Now the man began to boo-hoo. He fell on the floor in the hospital. And he began to cry. And right there on the floor of the Veterans Hospital in Loma Linda, California, that man gave his life to Jesus Christ. Right there. A week later, I saw that man. Came running down the hallway. Brother Doctor. Brother Doctor threw his arms around me said how is everything he said doctor you don't understand ever since we prayed last week ever since we had that experience he said I don't even have the desire for alcohol or drugs anymore because he was going to the desert to make crystal methamphetamine speed and he was drinking that's why he got pulled over by the police in the first place and wound up with us he said I don't even have the desire for drugs anymore I said that's wonderful I said, so how's everything going? He says, Doc, I have one problem. I said, what's that? He said, they keep kicking me out of the Alcoholics Anonymous and the Narcotics Anonymous meetings. I said, why are they kicking me out of meetings? He says, they tell me I'm calling on the name of Jesus too much in the meetings. I saw that man a few years later. He was still a devoted Christian. 
Let me tell you something. This when we preach about the blood of Jesus and his saving power, his ability to save and to, and to bring people from the guttermost to the uttermost. This is not just some soliloquy we say. This is not just some fairy tale we recite. It is real. Jesus is real. His blood is real. And his ability to forgive and to restore is real. And I challenge you. Because I know some of you have done stuff you're not proud of. But God knows what you've done. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you will be a better Christian when you understand just how much God loves you. And when you understand that your Christianity depends on the power of his blood, not on your willpower. And when you understand that you can live a victorious life over sin, you apply his blood to your life. Stop worrying about what you did, but start asking God, what God now, what do you want me to do next? Because every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Somebody in here tonight wants to stand with me and accept the free pardon of the blood of Jesus Christ. You want to stand with me tonight and say, listen, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You want to stand and just say, Lord Jesus, I give it all to you. I just want you to stand with me now. You want to accept the blood of Jesus Christ in your life? You want to follow him? You want to know him more and more and more. That's what you want tonight. To be one with Jesus Christ. To accept the pardon that he offers. If every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I don't know if we were going to sing something before we pray. Let's pray and then we can sing. Let's do that. Father God, you see your children standing. You know how serious this message is, Lord. I, I tried not to make it overly heavy, but I, I, it, the, the message needs to go forward. Your young people need to know that you love them and that your love for them is not determined by their behavior. You love them because you're God. You say in the book of uh, 1 John that, that you are love. God is love. So, Lord, I want every young person out there to know how much they are loved by you. You're not looking for an excuse to destroy them. You're not looking for a reason to punish them. You're, you're trying to find an opportunity to save them. So no matter how much sin they've committed, Lord, no matter how far they've gone, you still love them. And you want to bring them back. You want to connect them to you, Lord. You want them to ask for forgiveness, to repent of their sins. And you want them, Lord, by the power of the blood of Jesus, to not only have their sin washed away, but to have victory over sin itself. So that they can live a victorious life. But some young lady in here, Lord, right now, her mind is going back to things she did that she's not proud of, Lord. Remind her that you, as you say in the book of Isaiah, I, even I am he that blots out your transgressions and I remember your sins no more. Remind her, Lord, that you're willing to forget what she did if she's willing to give it to you. The young man in here, Lord, who, who knows he's not been right, he's not been living right, he's not done according to what he's been taught to do at home 
or in church, he knows he's been living contrary and guilt is piling up. Remind him, Father, that you're not a God of guilt and shame, but God of joy and peace. And that if he can accept the blood of Jesus Christ on his life, the bones that have been broken can be healed. He can be a stronger Christian after the blood is applied and after he has come back to you full circle. Bless us, Father God, to never be ashamed to repent, to confess, to acknowledge our sin. Help us, Lord, never to be afraid to bring our sin to you. And, and help us, Lord, to always know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's our prayer tonight, Lord, in the precious and holy name of Jesus, let the church say amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.